Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football and fan engagement editor here at Chronicle Live. And our Newcastle United time machine has dropped us off in 1950. Joining me to discuss the return of Newcastle's FA Cup habit is the club's official historian, Paul Joannew. And today's special guest is the co-author of one of Paul's essential Newcastle United books, The Ultimate Record. Our guest is described as the stats king by Paul. So it's great to welcome Bill Swan. Bill, we'll start with you. Thanks so much, first of all, for joining us for this episode. And uh, I was wondering if you could start by giving us just a little bit of a background on yourself with regards to your interest in Newcastle United and the history of the club. Thanks, Matt and, and Paul. Hello, Paul. Well, I was born in Northumberland and lived there until I went to university. My first job was on Teesside, where I was for three years. And then I, uh, my job took me down to Cheshire and I lived there for 50 years. Uh, but recently, four years ago, returned back to Northumberland. I now live in Northumberland. And when I was young, my, my father and all my uncles were very keen Newcastle fans. And so from a very early age, I used to sit listening to them talk about matches and players and games and other aspects of the club. And that sparked my interest. And my dad took me first to a match in uh, 1949 when I was just six. Um, and that I've been hooked ever since, basically. Um, and, and to demonstrate that, I met my wife-to-be at school some years later. And I think our third or fourth date was I took her to see Newcastle play Chelsea. So standing in the rain on the terraces, because uh, I really knew how to show a girl a good time. <laughs> Didn't seem to put her off. Um, so we got married, and uh, she continued to go to matches with me uh, all, all her life, basically, until she became too ill. Living in Cheshire for such a long t- period, we got up to games at home where we could. Um, but it wasn't always possible, but it was great for away games. Um, so we used to go all over Yorkshire, Lancashire, East Midlands, West Midlands, uh, Wrexham in North Wales. They're all easy to get to. So we attended lots of games there. And then when the children came along, we introduced them to the delights of supporting Newcastle <laughs> by taking them to away reserve team games, would you believe? So I remember going to watch the reserves playing at Preston and Stoke and places like that until they became old enough to go to first team games. And then we all used to go together as a family. Uh, And we've continued ever since. And they're still very hot, keen supporters of the club. Uh, And we're now introducing it to the next generation. My eldest grandson, um, Max is now 10, uh, lives in North Yorkshire, but wanders around with Newcastle kit on. And we've had him to a few games already. He's he's got a bit spoiled because the first game he went to, we scored in the first two minutes and went on to win. And I think he thinks all the games are like that, but uh, (laughs) he's got a a rude awakening coming when we get him back to games after the the pandemic. And like most supporters, long-suffering, waiting for the silverware to return, but at least I have 
because of my age, something to fall back on. I remember the 50s, the wins in the 50s, and I watched the 55 Cup final live on TV, which was mm. a great experience. My dad, when he went to matches, always brought me programmes back, so that basically started me off collecting programmes, and I've got a very big collection of programmes and memorabilia now. And when I was about nine or 10, I was always interested in numbers and facts and figures. And I started writing down statistics in notebooks and such like. And that gradually grew into a, a database, a computerized database of matches and players, which I've been able to use to help Paul with some of his books, um, particularly the um, Ultimate Record, which you've referred to several times. So that's me, really. But, uh, just like many others, a passionate fan, hoping for success but not really expecting it anymore. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a bit about success in this episode and we're going to ask you in a bit more detail in a bit about attending games during this era um, and, and and stats and trivia and stuff like that. But, but Paul, if you could um, kick us off, we're into the 50s then, 50-51 season. It got off to a bit of a wobbly start for the club. There was some managerial movement behind the scenes that the club had to deal with at the start of the 50s, wasn't there? There certainly was, as the 50s decade began, uh, United were rocked by the departure of manager George Martin, who had actually done a, an excellent job in taking the club to promotion and then challenging at the top of the table. Uh, but he left to join Aston Villa as boss, um, and it was left for Stan Seymour to effectively take control, and he was hands-on, and United entered a period which can be placed alongside uh, the re really the very best in the club's history. In Newcastle, we've learned we're very much a buying club for the first half of their existence, which is refreshing. Which players arrived in the early 50s? Well, yeah, virtually every season they, 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 they brought in two or three players and, and new men came in, a new goalkeeper, Ronnie Simpson, who eventually took over from Jack Fairbrother. He was a young keeper from Scotland. And Reg Davies, uh, a good Welsh international inside forward. There was also the odd player who came through the ranks, Bob Stoko started to progress from the reserve 11 uh, for a few games and he would become another stalwart in the black and white stripes in the coming years. And before we talk about the league and cup campaign for 50-51, Bill, this was the first season you mentioned or round about the era when you started to go to games as a young fan. We'd love to hear any memories you might have from your first visits. Even if those memories are faded, it'd be fascinating to hear what it was like to go to St James's Park at this time. Well, yeah, well... The first game I actually went to was in 49. It was, um, my dad took me to that game, I think, because it was a friendly between Newcastle and Liverpool, both clubs having been knocked out of the FA Cup. And I guess he reasoned that there would be fewer supporters there because the crowds were very big in those days. Uh, and, and he was right, although there were still 30,000 there, which was a, a large gate. And it was really exciting. Um, and the, the memory of going to the match is still very vivid. Walking along Strawberry Place with the red brick wall on the right-hand side and the, the turnstiles in it and then turning through the gates to go up towards the grandstand. I said turning through the gates. I actually never, ever saw gates on that opening. I don't know whether they were there. Presumably they were, but I never actually saw them. Anyway, we went up. We were going into the wing paddock and as all dads did, he lifted me over the turnstile, paid half the fee to the gate man who rumour has it just pocketed that money at, uh, uh, and into the ground. Uh, and, I mean, it was mind-blowing, basically. Um, I'd been to local matches before, on played on village pitches, 
um, but this was new, it's a stadium. Uh, and it's worth recalling that in those days, no TV, although TV was in the south but didn't cover football, not in the northeast. If you wanted to see any moving football, you might get some on the newsreels where they used to show a bit in the in the cinema, where they used to show a bit after rounds of the FA Cup. But that would only be three or four minutes uh, and all in black and white. And apart from that, it was just grainy black and white photographs in the papers. So to suddenly stand there and look at this huge, what looked like a huge ground, what was a bit mind blowing. And the numbers of people never been in a crowd that big before, you know, large and very noisy. I remember not not the organised chanting and singing of today, but just sort of cheering, very individual and uh, group wise, but not in an organised way. Um, so I was sat on the wall, unlike Tony Blair, I really did sit on the wall, um, and just looking around. I mean, the the big grandstand behind with a barrel roof off to the left was the I can picture it now, the Leaser's End covered. Opposite were the popular terrace, which I think in those days was just an earth bank with sleepers in it. Uh, off to the right, above the Gallagher end was the little box where they put the half-time scores. And in the corner was the 10-minute flag. You know, and, and just taking all of that in, very different to today. Uh, and the experience itself was different. Sitting on the wall, people walking around the track, selling peanuts and ice cream bars, which they threw into the crowd. Um, sometimes... Uh, having accidents, uh, a brass band playing, sometimes in the middle, sometimes marching. And the, so the experience was quite different. And then the players came out all in colour, of course, because everything else had been black and white that I'd ever seen. Not that it made a lot of difference, Newcastle wearing black and white, but they had a big white square on the back with a red number. And I can still see that red number nine. <laughs> uh, so that was really quite fascinating. And Sitting on the wall, when the ball came out of play, the boys nearest to it would scramble to kick it back to the players coming to take the throw in. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of the game, a lot of the boys would run onto the field to try to get autographs, despite the guy on the tannoy saying, telling them not to, because the players had been told not to sign autographs. So that, that the whole experience was actually mag quite magical, really. I don't know much about the game, don't remember much about the game. Because Milburn scored after two minutes, he was my idol, and I was in dreamland after that. So, but it was the whole experience, and and that stayed with me for a long time. That sort of experience. Uh, the next year, I went to watch a league game. We saw Blackpool play, and looking back at the records, um, I think seven of the Newcastle side that year played in the cup final that we're about to talk about. Mm. Um, the big draw there was, of course, with Stan Matthews. Uh, everybody wanted to see Matthews, but Matthews never really played well at Newcastle, and that perhaps is testament to the quality of the left-backs we fielded against him. And, of course, they kept him very quiet in that cup final as well. And then bringing us up to the season we're looking at now, um, checking back, I, I see that I went to the third-round game against Bury. I don't remember much about that. I remember it being very wet, uh, pools of water on the field, which surprised me. Um, and there was a mascot, a guy in a black and white hat and coat and an umbrella, walking around as a cheerleader, basically. And the next game, however, was the one I remember most because it was the Bristol Rovers tie. Um, and that was an all-ticket game. I think it was the first all-ticket game at Newcastle. Uh, so we went this Sunday before, stood in a long queue to get 
through the turnstiles to pick up tickets. And it's reported afterwards there's about 100,000 people queued for tickets. So there was a lot of disappointment because the gate was, official gate was 63,000. Uh, but in terms of anticipation, we've beaten some good sides. Uh, this was easy, wasn't it? You know, top of the league against third division South team. Bristol Rovers had, had to play nine games to get this far. And checking up recently, I just read the, the programme notes for the game and it said, should Bristol Rovers leave today as winners, it would be the biggest sensation of the season. One cannot visualise United losing. Well, they very nearly did. Um, I don't remember much about the game, but I remember... Uh, the tension towards the end in the crowd because it looked like the Wembley team might be disappearing um, and Bristol Rovers were well good value for their money. The, the abiding thing I remember, however, are the supporters, the Bristol Rovers supporters, strangely. Um, I remember in one of your earlier podcasts, I think it was Paul Brown, said that in East End days, women and uh, supporters of opposing sides attended games. Um, and I'm sure he's right, and I'm sure that happened in these days as well. But I never actually saw, remember seeing a lady, and I very rarely saw any opposition supporters. Um, and these were days, of course, no replica shirts, no segregation, people standing in big crowds. So the ladies and the opponents' faces might have just been lost in the sea, basically. Uh, the one club which did bring supporters used to be Arsenal. They used to bring big support which congregated behind the Gallagher goal. I remember that. But coming back to the Bristol Rovers game, as we were leaving, Bristol Rovers supporters in the stand uh, all started singing the club theme song, which for some bizarre reason was Goodnight Irene, a popular song at the time. <laughs> I have no idea how it connected to the club. Um, but that's an abiding memory I have of walking out and hearing that, that song. And then there's just one other game I'd mentioned that about a month later, uh, it was Liverpool again. We went to see Liverpool and the big draw was Albert Stubbins. Um, he played in the first game that I saw, but I, I was too young to take it in at those days. But by now I was beginning to take in what uh, names of opposing players and Stubbins was a big name. And I'd, um, I was very keen to see him. As, of course, were the crowd. In those days, you didn't boo ex-players when they came back with their new clubs. You showed them respect. Very different today, I think. Um, and in those days, the teams were announced on a Thursday evening, printed in the programme on a Friday, and late changes announced it over the tannoy. Stubbins was scheduled to play, and just before the, the players came out, it was announced over the tannoy that he wasn't playing. He was replaced by Dunn. And that was an audible groan around the crowd that they wouldn't actually get to see him, which was a big disappointment. But one player who did play in that game, which I didn't realise at the time, but basically was Bob Paisley. He he was actually left half in that team. Uh, didn't mean anything to me at the time, but he went on to become one of the greatest uh, managers of all time. Mm. Um, one thing I, I, I meant to mention, which I forgot, the, the friendly game that I went to in 49, there was also one interesting factor about that. Um, they played uh, a young Scottish winger in that game, his first game. Uh, having just signed him earlier that week, that turned out to be Bobby Mitchell. He's, yeah. So I was actually there when Bobby Mitchell played his first game for Newcastle. Um, and of course, he went on to be not quite Jackie Milburn's status, but very close to it. So so there's some of the memories I have of going. And, and as I said, I don't remember much about the games themselves, but the experience of going was always really quite magical, particularly at that sort of age. And that stayed with me for a long time. 
that's a good picture of of what it was like back in the early fifties, late forties. Yeah. Well, that, that's good if I've conveyed that. That's that's what I was yeah. trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant, and it it tees us up nicely to hear about the the league and the cup campaign from that season in a, a bit more detail, Paul. If you could do the honours and talk us through the fifty fifty one season. Yeah, well, uh, the league action uh, to start with started well. Uh, United, as in 1948-9 and 1949-50, were in the top group in the division. Uh, indeed, they were leading the pack early on, uh, but fell away to finish in fourth position as Tottenham Hotspur took over um, and, and won the trophy. And then the FA Cup uh, was the focus from January. Um, in fact, Spurs were the hit Newcastle for seven goals uh, in front of 70,000 at White Hart Lane, just to show that uh, Tottenham were, were, were the best side. Uh, Newcastle, though, were, were, were to revenge that defeat in the following season, and we'll, we'll look at that in due course. Yes, definitely. Probably save that one for episode 15 next week. But in the meantime, let's talk about the, the road to Wembley, Paul. Yeah, United's Cup run. Um, it was the first of three runs to Wembley glory, of course, in just five years. Uh, that it, it began with an easy victory uh, over Berry, as Bill linked to before, uh, and then a wonderful and epic tie with Bolton Wanderers followed. Uh, Newcastle were 2-1 behind uh, at St James's Park, and there wasn't very long left on the clock. Then the Magpies hit two late goals to win 3-2 in front of a huge crowd of 67,596. And that was United's biggest in the FA Cup on Tyneside and very close to that long-standing record back in 1930. Uh, United had players who could turn a game in attack uh, and that's what happened on, on that occasion. Um, and they looked a good bet for the FA Cup. They beat Stoke City and then that game with Bristol Rovers took place. The typical David V. Goliath contest which went into two games. Then after defeating Rovers eventually, they faced a tough meeting with rivals uh, in the top flight in Division One, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers in the semi-final, and that was a doer and tough close meeting, nil-nil uh, at Hillsborough. Then in a replay, United squeezed through two-one at Leeds Road in Huddersfield. Mm. And before we talk about the the cup final, regular listeners will know I like to dig out old newspaper extracts from the time, and we've got a clipping here from Thursday. 26th of April, 1951. It's a piece in the Daily Mirror, a column by Bob Ferrier called Top Rung, and it focuses on Jackie Milburn. I won't read the whole thing. However, there's an extract at the end, which is interesting. I'm going to read out and see what you guys think of it. It reads, um, when Jackie Milburn takes the field in the cup final against Blackpool on Saturday, he'll be carrying a lucky penny in the pocket of his shorts and hoping it will make a hat-trick of cup successes for Newcastle. The penny, which arrived in the mail at Newcastle's Buxton headquarters yesterday, was sent from the daughter of Frank Watt, who died after a life's work as secretary of the club. In 1924, a Newcastle supporter to whom the penny had brought good luck sent it to Frank. As a talisman for the final against Aston Villa, Neil Harris, centre forward that day, carried it with him, scored and Newcastle won the cup. Again in 1932, Jack Allen had the lucky penny on the field with him. He too scored and Newcastle won. The penny had been in Frank Watt's possession all those years and was sent as an expression of faith and good wishes. Milburn will be in the star-studded company at Wembley of Matthews, Mortensen, Johnson, Brennan, Mitchell and all the others who were giants. Yet War Jackie, Pride of Tyneside and Northumbria need yield to none of them. So, if Jackie Milburn did 
have the penny. He scored and Newcastle won the FA Cup. We need to find this penny. I was wondering, <laughs> is this the first you, you two have heard of this penny? No, I have heard of the story before. Um, many years ago, I, I did, I think, I make, made a plea in the programme at some point uh, to try and find out what happened to it because after that game, I'm not quite sure if, if the penny continued in 52 and 55, but um, it certainly wasn't there in 74 because we weren't, uh, we didn't have a centre forward who was very lucky on that day. Malcolm mm. McDonald could have done with it that, that day. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening and they've got any any uh, further information on the penny, we'd love to hear about it because that's a pretty good record. Three cup finals, three goal scorers, three wins. So, uh, yeah, good one there from on the eve of the FA Cup final in, in the Daily Mirror. Let's talk about the final then. Paul, it was a, a famous opponent and, as I mentioned, there's a, a famous clutch of players on the, on the field that day, wasn't there? Yeah, the final opponents were Blackpool, um, and, and back then, alongside Newcastle, uh, they were one of the best in the top flight, with a batch of players, uh, much like the Magpies, who, would, who could turn a game in a second. Uh, Stanley Matthews, we've, we've touched on him before, um, but they also had Stan Mortensen, um, uh, who was a, a former United wartime player and, and a, a famous South Shields lad, and he was a special forward, very much in the... In the uh, realm of Jackie Milburn, uh, one of the best players in the 50s. Uh, but one man stood out on that day, and that was Jackie himself. Uh, he was the match winner at Wembley with two marvellous goals uh, during a five-minute spell just after, uh, just as the second half began. Um, his first was uh, a typical offside trap goal. Uh, he, he beat the run, he beat the trap uh, by running from the halfway line. Uh, with the ball and, and stroked it past uh, the advancing Blackpool keeper. Um, and uh, very quickly afterwards, his second was a touch of magic, really. It was a great move by Newcastle. Uh, Tommy Walker surged down the wing from defence, uh, a ball inside to Ernie Taylor, and he made a lovely little back heel into the path of Milburn, who cracked the ball from outside the box into the top corner. And it was the very, one of the very best at Wembley, up to then, and even uh, all these years later, one of the best that's ever been at Wembley. Uh, United won 2-0, and skipper Joe Harvey climbed uh, the famous Wembley steps to receive the trophy. Amazing, amazing. Uh, and Bill, you were at a reserve game uh, v Leeds, you told us ahead of the podcast, when the winning first team came home from London with the cup and they paraded around the ground at the end of the game with it. We've got a picture here that I'm going to flash up on the screen for people watching on our YouTube channel, on our website. The Cup final was the 28th of April, so this was presumably the 29th of April. We'd love to hear your memories of, of that reserve game. Here's the team, I assume, parading from Central Station up to St James's Park where you were waiting. Yeah, no, it wasn't the 29th. After the Cup final, the players went down to Brighton for the weekend, as you do. Yeah, right. um, spent time down there, then made their way up during the week to Wolverhampton where they played uh, a league game on the Wednesday, uh, which they won 1-0, and they didn't return to Newcastle until the Thursday. And the reserve team game was scheduled for that Thursday, game against Leeds, uh, kick-off at 5.30, I think it was, and apparently 30 to 40,000 people were there, um, and I was amongst that. It's a pretty dull game, I think, but the crowd got a buzz went round the crowd when word got out that the cup had arrived at the ground. Um, they arrived at Central Station about 6.30 and then made their way from there 
as you've seen in the photograph, uh, up to the ground. Um, and at the end of the game, they came out and paraded around the pitch with the cup, um, following which they went back in and went up into the director's box where a few words were said. And I think Jackie Milburn said a few words, as I recall, at the behest of the crowd. I might have got those the wrong way around. They might have gone in the director's box first and then paraded, but I think not. I think they actually did the parade first. So that was really magical to share in the experience of the cup win. But interestingly, uh, Matt, it didn't finish there for me. Um, the uh, club was very conscious of its place in the community in those days and worked hard to uh, foster that. And a lot of the players did um, functions that summer, uh, which they took the cup to. We lived in Bedlington at the time. And in that summer, the club sent a team of footballers to play Bedlington Cricket Club at cricket. Mm. Uh, and they brought the cup with them and paraded it around the boundary uh, and then put it on display in front of the clubhouse. So I actually got almost within touching distance of the cup. That's very wow. close. Uh, so that was really, and it really allowed people in the area to, to sort of share in the in the whole thing. That's, um, mm -hmm. I can't remember who played in that get, the cricket game. I don't think Jackie was there. I would have known that. But I remember Frank Brennan was because I was imposed, in, impressed by his size. Mm -hmm. Matt, real man mountain he was. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was that was a really interesting experience, enjoyable experience. Mm. And we can see in the, in the picture actually, Frank Brennan is here at the back of the. Yeah, it's not quite it's not quite an open top bus. It's it's a, a nineteen <laughs> it looks like a nineteen thirties forties coach that they've got a big sunroof in, and the players are squeezing out of that. And uh, Bob Joe Harvey, sorry, is at the front with the trophy, and, and Milburn's over his right shoulder. It's a, it's a smashing shot, and it, it just shows, like you say, Bill, how much the winning the FA Cup was a big deal back then and, and brought a lot of joy to the, the city and the fans. Well, the Paul has said in a previous um, podcast that in those days, the cup was the thing you wanted to win. It was good to win the league. Everybody wanted to win the league. But the thing you really wanted to win was the cup. And, and, and for evidence of that, go back to Stanley Matthews. Uh, there was always a lot written about Stanley Matthews getting medals. And everybody wanted Matthews to have a cup winner's medal. I don't ever recall anybody ever saying they wanted Matthews to have a league championship medal and he never won one. Um, <laughs> it was always about the cup and that was where the real excitement was. And I guess it's because it's a one-off occasion, wasn't it? You know, it's um, you could win the, the league on a wet Wednesday away from home, but this was actually a showcase occasion, a one-off match, which everybody could share in. Although in those days, all you could do was listen to it on the radio. Mm, yeah. And uh, Bill, staying with you, as, as the stats mm -hmm. man, we, we, I wondered if you had any stats or trivia about this particular team or era of, of Newcastle United that you can enlighten yeah. myself and well, Paul I've with. Picked listeners. up one or two. Paul probably knows all of this, but um, <laughs> uh, he mentioned the, the two wonderful goals that Jackie scored at Wembley. By doing by scoring at Wembley, that made him one of the players who'd scored in every round in a single season in the cup, and the. Cup's been going a long time. It's still quite a rare event. I think there's only about a dozen players have actually achieved that. Mm. Um, the player before Jackie was actually Stan Mortensen, which Paul's talked about. He did that in 1948 for Blackpool. The player next after Jackie was an ex-Newcastle player, um, Charlie Wayman. He did that in 1954 for Preston. And one of the earliest players was a player called to do it was Harry Hampton, who achieved the feat 
when he scored in the cup final of 1905 against Newcastle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Jackie remains the only Newcastle player to achieve that. Um, and Paul said that the season started off well, and it, and it did. They actually went 11 games without defeat at the start of the season, which was a new club record at the time. Um, not even the great Edwardian side could actually match that. Um, and in the middle of that, they went to Portsmouth and got a nil-nil draw. And <laughs> that was the sixth successive time they'd been to Fratton Park and come away without scoring a goal. It mm. wasn't a good place to go to. Um, and Paul's mentioned attendances as well. The, the Tottenham game, 70-odd thousand, just over 70,000. That was the second biggest away league gate for Newcastle at that point in time, beaten only by a game they played against Manchester United two years earlier, which actually played at Main Road. Um, it has been beaten since, but only by games against Manchester United. Um, and the uh, game against the, the Capitai against Bolton, that remains the second highest league attendance at St. James's, uh, second highest league and cup attendance at uh, St. James's Park, the highest cup attendance. Uh, in, in the match at Wembley, the um, Blackpool actually fielded uh, an amateur, uh, Bill, Bill Slater played, he was a university student, um, and he was the last amateur to play in a cup final. Um, he actually went on to lift the cup for Wolves in 1960. Uh, and in the Newcastle side, as Paul's mentioned, was Ernie Taylor. Uh, Ernie Taylor, that was the first of a treble for Ernie. He played for, in three FA Cup finals for three different teams, Newcastle, Blackpool in 53 and Man United in 58. Uh, and actually he scored a hat-trick for Leeds, uh, against Leeds, sorry, in a wartime game uh, at the age of 17, which would make him the youngest actual scorer for Newcastle, although that wasn't classed as a first-class match, so doesn't get in the record books. There was actually a first that season as well, I think. Um, I'm not sure about this, but at the end of the season, a lot of British clubs played uh, friendlies against continental opposition to mark the Festival of Britain celebrations. Newcastle played a French club called Stade Brienne. And at half time, they made two substitutions. And I think that might be the first time ever that substitutions took place in a game at Newcastle. I'm not sure about that, but I think that was the case. Mm, um, and a little bit of trivia. In February, they played Sheffield Wednesday at home, and whilst they were attacking the Wednesday gate goal, a youth ran on the field and ran up to George Robledo in the middle of the penalty area and asked him for his autograph with the game going on around him. <laughs> uh, I don't know what actually happened to him. I imagine he was he was actually thrown out. But uh, in those days, there weren't many policemen. I didn't actually see many policemen around because there didn't tend to be much trouble. But, uh, but that, that was I thought that was an interesting one. <laughs> well, occasionally, occasionally it happens in the modern era, but I think instead of an autograph, fans try to get a selfie. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yes, that would be today, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be good. A selfie with George Robledo, I'd, I'd be interested mm. in that. But mm. yeah, some great, some great trivia there. Paul, Joe Harvey, you mentioned, lifted the trophy. It certainly wouldn't be the last piece of silverware he would get his hands on as a, a player or manager with Newcastle. Can you tell us a bit more about Joe, an icon of Newcastle United history? Uh, yeah, well, Joe, Joe was certainly an icon. Um, he spent nearly 40 years with Newcastle United uh, and he had a huge influence 
on the club in post-war football as a player, coach and manager. Um, he was a Yorkshireman from near Doncaster and, and joined Newcastle just as the war ended um, from Bradford City. He, he made his name in the wartime leagues. He, he served with the Royal Artillery as a sergeant major, as a training instructor. And uh, that maybe gives you a little indication what he was like on the field and as a manager. He was a strong character. Uh, he shouted and bawled out his instructions. And he joined Newcastle uh, for four, four and a bit thousand pounds. Tough, uncompromising one wing half in midfield. Uh, and uh, he was he became the leader of Newcastle United from 1945 onwards, really, uh, in, in those post-war years up to the mid-50s. Um, he made 281 appearances, led Newcastle to promotion in 47, then to become one of the club, country's top sides, challenging for the title, and then lifted the FA Cup in 1951, 1952 as a player. Uh, and then he was on the coaching staff for the next victory in 1955. And then he went away to be to train as a manager in the, in the backwaters of, of the Football League at Barrow in Workington. But there was always, always a feeling that he would come back to Newcastle United and, and because he had a very good relationship with the likes of Stan Seymour and other board members. And when the club were in uh, a bit of trouble in June 1962, he, he came back as manager, guided them the promotion in 65, then European qualification for the very first time. And of course, you know, went on to lift the European Fairs Cup uh, in that first season of 68-69. Took us to the FA Cup final again. We didn't win, but he, he formed by then a, a team full of attacking type players. And uh, he, he you know, showed Newcastle that, uh, or showed the rest of the country that Newcastle United were, were, were an entertaining side. He eventually became an adopted Geordie without doubt. He stayed in the city for the rest of his life. Um, and as a, as a manager, he, he played 600, or he, he was in control of 628 games. So over the club's entire history, he, he stands up there with the very best and one of the great uh, figures in the club's history. Yes, amazing. And I'm sure we'll speak about him again in future episodes. Bill mentioned... Ernie Taylor. How about the rest of the cup winning side of 1951? Can you tell us a bit more about them? Well, Jack Fairbrother was between the posts. Uh, that was going to be more or less his last season because Ronnie Simpson was coming in. He, 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 but he was a, a pretty steady goalkeeper. Fullbacks uh, for the final were Bobby Corbett uh, and Bobby Cowell. Actually, Alf McMichael, the big signing from Ireland, uh, would have played, but he was injured um, and Corbett stepped in. Halfbacks, Joe Harvey and Frank Brennan were, were, were knew about. And there was Charlie Crow, who was a, a tenacious uh, terrier in midfield. He came through the ranks and, and played in that final. And the forward line was was quite special. You know, Tommy Walker was fast and direct. Uh, Ernie Taylor, he was only five foot four tall, but um, he had magic in those small legs and boots of his. And, and it was said that Jackie Milburn just loved playing with Ernie Taylor alongside him. And Milburn was centre-forward. George Robledo, uh, whose day would come in the following year in the cup final. Um, and Bobby Mitchell uh, on, on the other flank. And he was now a player who could uh, delight the crowd and win matches on his own. So it was developing into a very, very special uh, side. Uh, it changed a little bit in 52 and changed again by 55. But all 
all those years between 1950 and 1955, uh, the side were quite special. And it, and it had been a marvellous season, 1950-51. You know, 1951-52 was perhaps even better because United again reached the cup final, uh, but this time after one of the most difficult uh, runs in the entire history of the club. Mm, interesting. We can talk about in a bit in detail in, in the next episode. Looking forward to talking more about this team. Bill, we can't let you go without asking you about your connection to um, someone we're going to be talking about a lot in the coming weeks, Jackie Milburn. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, well, apart from my family and my uh, allegiance to the club, uh, my next interest is really genealogy. And I've been researching my family history for over well, 25 years or so. And about five or six years ago, I discovered that Jackie Milburn, no less, was descended from my five times great-grandparent Swan. So he had Swan blood in him. It's a bit bit, bit uh, distant, but it's there nonetheless. It's real. Um, and for me, that's better than being related to royalty, basically, I have to tell you. I mean, growing up, he was, in my generation, he was everybody's hero. Um, even the ladies knew about him. Even my mother, who wasn't particularly interested in football, knew all about Jackie Milburn. Um, and to be related to him is, is really marvellous. And um, I never got to meet him, which was a shame, but my parents lived just around the corner from his sister, Mavis. And uh, my mum and her were good friends. And she once told my mum that she'd been looking through one of his scrapbooks and she'd found pasted in there was a letter that I'd sent to Jackie about something else some time previously. So it's nice to think that there was some sort of connection there mm. basically that was really nice so yeah so that's something that and um, that is interested my family my daughter built a, a new house in ireland she lives in ireland it's called milburn house that yeah. that tells you something about how how jackie's revered by myself and my family yeah. um but i do have another connection actually with the with the history of the club um if you got just a moment um mm -hmm. the very first uh, trophy that uh, the club won was when East End won the Northumberland Senior Cup in 1885, and they beat uh, Sleekburn Wanderers 1-0 in the final. And Sleekburn Wanderers goalkeeper that day was Joseph Swan, who was another distant relative. Ah. Uh, but no, I've never met him either. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's nice to find those sort of connections. They, they come totally surprising. Um, the Milburn one was interesting because I knew he was named after his grandfather, John Edward Thompson, and I'd found a John Edward Thompson in my family tree. Um, but it didn't seem to tie up because the, the, the name of his, I think Jackie always called his mother Nance, I think. Uh, and I couldn't find that in the family tree. And John Thompson, well, there must be lots of John Thompsons. And it was somebody else who said, no, no, that's the right family. And Paul helped me, put me in touch with um, Jackie Milburn's son. And he confirmed, no, that was really, that was um, the correct family. And Nance was a nickname, or her real name was Alice, I think. So it it sort of fell out for me in that sort of way. And uh, as I said, was was really exciting for me. Um, as a, he still remains my number one idol at, at the club, despite all Shearer and everything, McDonald and everything else. Milburn for me, I'm afraid. Amazing, amazing. Great. Thanks for, for sharing that. Gents, thanks very much for, for doing this today. I really enjoyed the episode. It's a, the first in a back-to-back -back trilogy of episodes 
that cover Newcastle winning the FA Cup. So we'll be back at Wembley in next week's episode, which uh, comes out as ever on, on Wednesday. In the meantime, if you have any NUFC history questions, listener, or observations or small stories, does anyone have the lucky penny? Please get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> the email address is the eibwpodcast at reachplc.com or tweet me at Ketchell or at, on, on Twitter. And subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're, you're listening to us on follow chronicle lives newcastle united channels on social media we're at chronicle nufc on twitter facebook and instagram and lastly please do stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily newcastle united newsletters these are free you get a morning news roundup an evening news roundup and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox i'll put the link to sign up for our newsletter in the show notes hit that scroll down to sport newcastle united updates tick the box and you'll be signed up Thanks so much for listening to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanu and special guest, Bill Swan. <laughs>